Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I wanted to discuss about one of the biggest elephants in the room, uh, in organization, and it's about the effectiveness of managers. Look at the numbers. So there is some research that shows that 22% of employees strongly agree that the leadership uh, has a clear direction for the organization. 15% of employees strongly agree the leadership uh, makes them enthusiastic about the future. Only 13% strongly agree the leadership communicates effectively with the rest of the organization. So the big question here is, are managers really needed or should we tweak or revise the job description? My guest today is Jack Skills. And what I found quite interesting is that very recently he has uh, written a book called Unmanage, Master the Magic of Creating Empowered and Happy Organizations. And he was quite inspired. Oh, that's the one, indeed, indeed. And I was very inspired because the guy, Jack Skills, is a two-time Inc. 500 award-winning executive. He has been working with Rand as a senior analyst. He He's the founder and CEO of an agency, no, of, of a company called Agency Agile. And what is interesting is that this company is helping agencies kind of quiet this type of crazy mess that there is in creative agencies with multiple projects and kind of guide them to uh, towards restoring productivity, profitability, and of course, what makes creativity fun. Um, they do it using their proprietary culture-based team empowerment model and using the agile methodology. And we are going to be discussing today about that simple question that a lot of people is asking. Are managers really needed? Jack, welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. Thank you very much for making it today. Oh, Ivan, thanks for having me here. I'm looking forward to this conversation too, because it's a great topic, a great topic. And, and what I have noticed is that in your book, this topic has been expanded with a lot of research. I'm not sure how long time it has taken you to gather this information <laughs> in your uh, in your book. Uh, by the way, so how long time did it take you to 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 write the book? Oh, that's an embarrassing question. So I, you know, and I mention it partly in the book is that I, um, it was a I I decided that people weren't managing right, and that was in 2010, tw yeah, 2010, yeah, that people weren't managing right. And I was going to write a book about it, and I wrote the book. I mean, I wrote the outline and I did all the research, and then I realized that I had been a pretty bad manager as well. I mean, I was writing it to prove that I'd been a good manager. I thought, wow, I can't write a book about something I've never done. I mean, that feels so inauthentic and the like. And so you know, what followed was the last 13 years of uh, Agency Agile, 200 clients. And you know, we're basically going and solve this million dollar problem, which is how do we get the managers out of the way of the team, right? And and make things run better. And uh, And then just, I think, literally probably two years ago, I said, okay, now it's time. And, and it's hard. It's hard to write a book, but it, it took quite a while. So Jack, I completely agree. It is really hard. So don't be harsh on yourself because I, I had the time. So because I got my free copy. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I had the time to, to, to read through the, uh, uh, through, through the book. And there is an, a wealth of combination of information that, in fact, Despite the fact that I have been working in corporate, I didn't know. So it seems that you have spent quite a lot of time, not only to write it, but even to refresh some of the data. Even if you started to, in 2000 and something, <laughs> you have refreshed the data. And, and this is the moment where I would like to ask you um, um, the, the core of, of, of my question, which is that, so we know that businesses are moving faster, there is technology, there is remote remote work, 
Uh, there is the work culture crisis where nobody feels engaged with their managers. Uh, is there a place for a manager whose job is to manage? Well, yeah. So, you know, I'm glad we have a lot of time on this podcast, okay? Because one of the one of the things one must ask first in that whole thing is, what do we mean by manage? Indeed. And yeah. because we, I'll, I'll tell you the word, the the label manager gets overused and the like, and I'll explain that more in a minute. But I want to just take you rewind a little bit. the 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 idea of manager is actually an industrial revolution thing, and though that was that predates all of us. It's only about 100 years old, right? Maybe 120 years old. Before that point, before the turn of the previous century, 1900 or so, before that point, the word manage was used, but it meant to tend to livestock, okay? So it meant like a, a shepherd, right? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of my, my animals, right? And um, so in that, yeah, no, yeah, whatever you have to do, depending on your your attitude about the animals, right? Are they cooperative or non-cooperative? And uh, the the man who invented what we think of as managing, Friedrich Taylor, actually believed that some workers needed to be treated like oxen, you know, like you said, smacking them and moving them along. And so th this this idea that that workers would not do anything unless they were coaxed, if you will. Um, he used a phrase, it was, um, manager's job is to enforce the cooperation. Now, I, you know, enforce the cooperation doesn't really sound all that friendly, right? That's like, you know, that's what the police do when they're moving people out of the street, right? They're enforcing cooperation. And uh, and so I think that's, in a way, the way we think about managing is is really tainted by, in fact, the the, it's early days and the idea that managers are the ones who know better, right? And managers can should be directing everyone. Fast forward to today. And by, by the way, you didn't need to go all that far forward in the future. By 1950 or so, it had been proven that that wasn't true, that actually things happen better inside the organization when everyone's helping to make decisions and the like. And it's not about managerial superiority. It's about managerial enablement right and that that was the 1950s 1960s is where the idea that maybe managers should be empowering you know that's where all those ideas came up they've become very popular in the 90s and the like but something funny happened during that whole time period which is workers today are incredibly intelligent and even i even even i 40 years ago when i came out of college with a, a very high end um computer science and factory automation degree when i got hired in as junior junior dude whatever i was programmer basically when i got hired in i knew more about what we were doing than any of my managers did than any project manager did right and and so what were they going to manage right i mean there's just and that and that's what the world is starting to look like now you want to be good at something you use utah youtube and tiktok and and go read stuff on the internet you don't you don't need to learn from a manager kind of thing so a lot of these things that used to be fundaments of why managers exist, like people who don't know what to do or people who aren't able to think about these topics or whatever, all those, all that stuff's gone now. Okay. So your question's very relevant. Is what, what, where to now managers, right? Do, why do we need you and the like, right? And going back to the initial numbers I was mentioning, so the initial numbers are saying managers suck at communicating. So they, they, they suck at motivating people. They are not good with the clear direction of, uh, directions that the organization needed. So what are they good for, uh, for is, is the big question. So according well, to I'll, you- I'll, I'll answer that. I didn't mean to duck it. I, 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 I want to give you a, a moment to jump, you know, to just because uh, I talked for a little while there. Um, you know, I, I think that the, one one of the big things is the if we think of what a manager is, and I, I want to keep on defining this a little bit, and then I'll, I'll come to that answer. The idea manager is that is the hierarchical, what they call the vertical manager. That's the classic manager. I'm I'm in a department of specialists of some sort, and my manager used to be a specialist, but he or she became the best specialist, right, and got promoted to manager, which by the way is a mistake. Okay. First of all, being a really good 
has nothing to do with becoming a great manager. And there's a whole body of research that actually uh, suggests, the, the, the findings suggest that the department becomes weaker when we when we promote the specialist manager. And actually motivation goes down because those managers, those new managers usually micromanage. All they know how to do is focus on the work. So they, they're a manager and they're trying to focus on the work, which is not their job anymore, right? And so, so that's the... That that's the dilemma of the of the sort of new department manager these days is uh, congratulations you don't get to do what you used to do which was fun and rewarding instead you have to do this job that you know nothing about and your 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 all of your inclinations will be wrong right? basically right you should be doing the opposite the the other thing that that's really important to point out is in in about 1970 or so. A little bit earlier, but someone it became this idea became popular in in you know management sciences, which is of a matrix organization. Mm-hmm. And what that said all of a sudden was, well, you don't have one manager; you have two, at least, right? So in a matrix organization, I may be on three projects. I have my department manager, but I have a manager for each of those projects. So now I have four managers. Okay, mm-hmm. and and. The early adopters of this, uh, one of them was Ken Ken Olson, who had a digital equipment corporation, the CEO. I used to work there, actually. But Ken Olson, after doing it for two years, said, it's killing our innovation and our productivity. We're getting rid of matrix management. It's too many managers. So he was, a, he was an in-the-weeds guy, and he could see that happening. But somehow no one else got that memo. And today, organizations are filled with both vertical managers, which are needed. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But tons of what, what we call quasi-managers is they're sort of managers, but they're not your manager, right? But they don't seem to know the difference, right? So they start thinking like, I need to be a manager. And what they reach for is, in fact, the old definition of management. I'm going to tell people what to do, all that kind of thing, right? And the sad, the sad end of this is that at the end of the day, the the only reason we had managers was to make people more productive. And in fact, the the idea that the more the more managers we have makes more people productive is absolutely not true. Okay. So one thing is we don't need as many managers. And the more managers you have, the less productive your organization will be. Hmm. And what is crazy about about what you're saying is that if, if even in organizations like this is strategy consulting firms, they have a huge amount of managers. So they know everything that you should know about productivity and efficiency. Nevertheless, they have, I still see these uh, uh, matrix organizations in several of the consulting groups that I have been working with, uh, it's still existing. Yeah, you know, it. it... Part of it is driven by, in the consulting side, and we work with consultancies as well, part of that's driven by the fact that the the projects that they're doing now are more multidisciplinary and complex in that way, right? So it becomes, it's sort of the same problem, right? We don't do, we don't do simple projects anymore, right? There's no... There's no just, we're just going to do this finance thing. If you're going to do a finance thing, you're going to do a finance thing that's going to impact supply chain. It's going to impact a bunch of systems and and maybe the market-facing proposition or how we deal with our vendors. And all of a sudden, it's this huge, complex project with a lot of matrix management in it. And the 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 I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna actually answer your question in just a second here. Yeah, hey. I, I'm fine, Jack. I, I yeah, yeah, no, no, but I, but I want I want to get to that. I, I'm yeah. Already... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the problem, one of the biggest problems that happens with so many managers. See, in the old days, I'm the manager of the department, and I'm the singular person that can tell someone what to do. Okay, what's the most important thing to work on? When does it need to be done? All that kind of thing. And maybe even if they need it, how to do it. Okay. Now I've got, you know, in the agencies we work in, any given worker has 10 different managers and quasi-managers on any day that can tell them what's the most important thing, when should it be done, how you should be doing it, all, all that kind of thing. And, and none of them would agree on those topics. So we've got essentially, I, I've become as a worker, I'm trying to come in and get work done. And the organization is designed 
to keep me from getting work done and inadvertently designed, but it essentially is if I'm not doing, there's no way I can do what all 10 managers want me to do. Right. So I become this negotiant between different managers and different priorities. And people are trying to ask me for favors. And do you have just a minute, which doesn't take just a minute, all those sorts of things. Managers, the existence of so many managers kills productivity. And so the role, the most important thing, I go into this, of course, in a lot of detail in the book, the most important thing managers need to focus on is, is my interaction with the worker, the person doing actually doing the work, is it increasing productivity? And in that way, like for the, the example I just gave, my deciding I, I want Jeremy to go work on my project right now is actually going to kill productivity if he's not working on it because he's going to have to stop what he's doing. Maybe he's going to have to go negotiate a different timeline with some other manager. Um, maybe this will create a bunch of noise and we have to have another meeting where everyone gets together and we kill more productivity with our meeting. The fact that managers don't manage well together means that workers have increasingly decreasing pro productivity, right? And so the job of the manager is the singular job is to ensure the, the productivity. And it's not by managing, it's by staying away from the worker, essentially by not creating these conflicts and these confusing interactions. And you know, most managers, what interesting thing, most managerial groups like that, those eight or 10 managers, one, they don't agree on priority. So how, how's Jeremy going to work that out, right? Second is if they're all managers on the same big project, they don't even agree on scope a lot of times. So you know, they're telling Jeremy to do different things in different ways. It's a multi-manager problem that has nothing to do with workers. It's that managers have to get their stuff together in a way that does not impede worker productivity. Is there a way, in fact, to, <clears throat> to create this sense of principles that are going to guide the priorities in terms of, uh, of productivity? Have you seen it? Uh, have you implemented it or seen it live and working in an organization? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, obviously, if I wrote the book, that's that's what we practice. So we you know, the book is is what we preach and and actually practice too. There, there's an interesting problem in all of this, right? Which is at any given any given day, we don't realize this a lot of times about ourselves. We make thousands of decisions. Okay. And so I as a manager in the workplace, I'm going to make several hundred decisions, if not more about should I do this? Should I, should I say this? Should I interrupt Jeremy? All those sorts of things. And the problem is, you know, the majority of those actions, if you take that action, you're going to decrease productivity, right? And mm -hmm. so there's no, you know, there's one guidance, which is do less managing. Do, do managing only when necessary, right? It's better for you to sit there doing nothing as a manager and let people get work done than it is for you to be intervening with them unnecessarily, right? So there's there's that first problem. and But but there's also just the way you do it. And so what we worked out, um, and this is one of those things where you realize what you've done after you've done it a bunch of times. Um, after we'd worked with 120, 130, 40 agencies and, you know, and other organizations, we realized there are four key managerial moments and if managers behave as a group and individually in those four moments, then things go a lot better. It's still not perfect, and I doubt it ever will be. We as humans are not perfect, and and the whole problem of the way we have, how many managers we have is, I don't. It hopefully it gets solved in my lifetime. But these four managerial moments are very cool. There's the there's the why. I'll tell you them first. Why, what, go, and grow. So why, I'll come back to why. What is the what we're doing? Scope, right? Okay, that's the what it is that needs to get done, right? I, I mentioned before, the larger the project, the less likely the managers and stakeholders all agree on the what, okay? <laughs> In other words, they will be misaligned on it. And so that if I'm the team working on this and the the people sort of managing, supervising, leading, 
this project don't even agree on the scope or don't even understand the scope fully, how am I supposed to get it done? So one of the most important things is make sure managers are aligned on scope, deeply aligned. And most people say, yeah, we're aligned, but then we do an exercise where we prove it, right? We we actually make them describe the scope and they start arguing with each other, right? Uh, and so that, that's scope. What is scope? Go is when people are executing the work, right? And, and that's another moment where you want to find a way to help managers avoid interrupting Jeremy because every time Jeremy gets interrupted, it costs 15 to 20 minutes of productivity, right? And so there are five or six managers hovering around Jeremy. It, you know, the, the average productivity in a day at the ag in agency land for a worker is about two and a half hours okay? mm -hmm. out of an eight hour day, two and a half productive hours out of an eight hour day. is That's like insanely crazy. If I if I turn that agency into a five person agency, people are getting like six hours a day worth of work. Okay, and the only difference is that there's so many more managers in the fifty or hundred person agency than there were. The, the work didn't change. Jeremy's still doing the same work. Right. So the the other two, the third moment is grow. Okay, which is the role of the manager to help people grow and get as it sounds like this is the gardener. I'm gonna cultivate the earth around Jeremy and give him great experiences and give him support, sunshine, water, all those things. Right. And, and so those are, those are, those three are just, there are a set of practices that you can do around each of those that actually boost productivity. We've proven it over and over now and the like, I'll pause, but then I'll come back to why, which is actually the really tricky, clever one. So. <clears throat> exactly. So for the time being, we have covered the, the what, so the scope of work, the go, that means that the manager is helping prepare the land so that every, all the execution goes smoothly, that the, there is everything that the team needs, but they are doing it on, on, on their own. And then it's about the personal, uh, personal and professional development of, of, of the person. Times where the manager needs to intervene, otherwise stay away of the person. That's your message. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the thank you. um yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think the thing is that teams are good at asking for help. Okay. And the the there's there are all kinds of things that happen. I think maybe we'll talk about what goes wrong here a little bit too, which is I get appointed to being a manager. I, I had this experience back when I was at first first a manager. I, you know, I've been a programmer. I hated managers because I thought they were stupid. Then they offered me a manager job, right? And there's a little irony there. But I also knew that I should be doing, I should be doing what I thought a manager should do, which was I stayed away. I mean, talk to them in the morning and what do you need? And then I'll go do other I'll go talk to other managers. Because if I'm talking to them, by the way, they can't interrupt anyone either, which is kind of cool. Um, but the I I I got this idea that maybe being a lazy manager is actually more productive for my teams. And it is, it's, it's amazing. So there's, there's this whole idea that, um, that if I just do less, people get more done. And this is proven by research and also our, you know, our work that we've done as well is that having managers in less con and this is an agile idea as well, having managers in less contact with the team. Okay. Actually makes the team more productive, you know, the sprint, right. Yeah. You know, so we do a two-week sprint, and you know, the first day of the sprint, the managers are able to talk to the team about what they're going to do, and then the last day of the sprint, the managers get to see what they did. And and what's the rule for the other eight days? Stay the fuck away from the team. Literally, that that's the rule, right? Okay? And those teams have tremendous productivity, and so we stole that idea. So now is, is the, the good moment to talk about the why, our last point. Yeah, so the one of the things that gets, that happened from, I believe it happened from the industrial era, is the the workers in the industrial era were mostly, in the U.S., were immigrants, fresh off the boat, no English, little English language skills, largely uneducated, right? Probably farm workers or even worse, you know, migrants that were, in a lot of cases, they were the discards, if you will, the throwaways from other other countries and the like, the people who were escaping persecution or whatever. And 
factories and automation and machines. That was all new to them. They didn't know anything about it, right? And so this this idea back then that that they couldn't that they were just going to be animals, right? They they couldn't contribute to the discussion of management or anything like that. Um, that's where they got born. Is that that and why the word manage was probably chosen, right? The the difference though is that people do need they do need some support, but they're actually they've always been, and this got proven in the 1950s. They've always been incredibly motivated. We humans are the product of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. All of our ancestors were badasses at surviving and figuring things out and the like. It's only today that we can sort of lay back and be bored about stuff or watch Netflix, that kind of thing. But back then it was survival. And those of us that are here now are because here because our ancestors got wired for survival and solving problems and had a work ethos. And it turns out that people have an amazing work ethos. And if given a chance to care about something, they care about it deeply. And if they actually all feel like they're working together towards something and understanding it together, they get more motivated and their work quality goes up, their productivity goes up, and they're producing better work faster and punchline, they're happier doing it. Okay, they get more reward from it. Okay, so this is the magic. So, how do you unlock this magic? We talked about the other three moments, which are really like, how do we get out of the way of the team, right, and and help grow the team? But the why moment is a very very interesting moment, and that's that's the old industrial thing, which the worker doesn't need to understand the factory or why we're doing this or why they're punching a hole in this thing. Just do it. Just get it done. Do two hundred a day, and you you get your paycheck, right? It turns out that when you bring the worker into the front of it, the why, why we're doing this, why it has to be right, how this fits into the bigger picture, why the customer wants it this way, all those sorts of things. Again, productivity, quality, and engagement go up, and the, the quality of the output goes up dramatically. It turns out that if you can engage these people's brains, that they become contributors to how to do things better, how to do things faster. They share lessons learned amongst, amongst themselves. And this very important moment, the moment when the manager and leaders, and this is why the leaders get such bad scores, by the way, the leaders actually stop and say, what do you guys want to know about what we're doing and why we're doing it? What do you guys want to know about what the challenge is or what we're really trying to solve with the client? If you think of a town, we, we have a, a structured way to do this, but if you think of a town hall meeting, mm -hmm. and um, there's a there's a great example in one of the wonderful books about this. Um, the Japanese do this very well. And um, there was a the CEO, I think it was of Kawasaki Motorcycles. And he was sort of being like a Steve Jobs guy and, and rejecting every motorcycle revision and th that the development teams were doing. And they couldn't figure it out. And he said come with me. And he took the whole engineering team and they went out to a track, a high speed motorcycle race track. And he had the, he had the motorcycles going around the track and he, he got on one corner right up next to the track, really close to the motorcycle and, and put his hand on the ground. And he said, can you feel that when it goes by? And so everyone got, everyone's feeling it, right? He says, and can you feel what's wrong with that? And they spent a bunch of time with him having them get his mindset okay and they could actually understand what they're really striving for and he it, it was a genius about this stuff not only the process but he was a visionary about how to how a racing motorcycle should sound and feel and that the vibrations of it tell you how it's running and and that kind of thing and they became great at that and it was because everyone everyone got aligned on this why moment why our motorcycle has to be a certain way and have these certain qualities and and even how to tell when it's happening and not. What I like about the, your explanation, I don't know if this is the direction that you want to take it, but so from one side, when you, you are explaining the management in the previous years, you are talking about more about this, the sense that the motivation was coming from the fact that you were subsidizing your your. Uh, basic um, survival, which is I need to have food, I need to have 
like a salary, so I will take it. So I will do whatever whatever it takes. And yeah, yeah. standing now with your why that is going to the direction about this sense of purpose, meaning, which creates something that we have inside of us that we don't do anymore the thing because of the money, because of the salary, but something called is creating an intrinsic motivation, creating something that comes from within and that we do with the heart when we understand why we are doing that because everybody aspires to, to do things, not because we have a job, but to do things because it provides a service to the community, because it, it makes people happier, because I don't know, because we are making an amazing motorcycle that needs to provide adventure and, and, and energy to the, to the user. Is that correct? yeah and I, I yeah yeah I think I think you're nailing it the um a lot of people talk about inspirational need for inspirational leadership and I think that a lot of leaders think that means I need to be I need to have a vision that's so you know whatever it's 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 very simple and we had a client by the way that that did did something like that and they had on their walls um, we are empowered. It felt like a, a propaganda poster. We are all empowered. And I thought, and nobody knows what that, I mean, we know what it, it the idea is, but how do I do that? I, how do I tell when it's happening and not happening? Right. I, and the bringing the, the, the true leadership, inspiring leadership, and he said it very well, true inspiring leadership is about how do I, as a leader, engage hearts and minds in a genuine way, not in a, you know, I'm not going to give you a Mike Tyson fight speech or something like that, but I'm going to explain to you why, why our business matters. And, and I think you got at it, at it as well, which is, thank God for the millennials, I say, okay? The millennials are shaking things up and saying, if you can't answer that question for me, I'm not going to work for you, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I work for you, I'm just going to plug plug my time in while I develop my craft brewery idea and get some funding for it and then go do something that matters, right? And, and so that that whole idea that um, that people were so hostage to needing some money, right, has, has long gone away. And I think, it, you know, our generation, we sort of said, hey, money, money, money. Hey, great. That's, you know, I'm going to, I'm look how successful I am. Look at my vice president title, all that kind of thing. The newer generations are saying, yeah, but where's the meaning? Where's the beef, if you will? And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Jack, I, my guess is that as we have spoken to these four critical moments where the manager should be available and should that the real job of the manager, if you want, and the rest is stay away of the people. How do you teach? How how do you teach that to people uh, to the to the future to the future gen generation of, of of managers? Considering the fact that, I mean, we, I'm pretty sure that you, we both we would both agree about the fact that. The traditional training, like showing slides and and doing a one day training, that's bullshit. Because <laughs> this is about practice. It's about creating a behavior that is natural uh, and that is going to be sustainable. It's not about we practice and then if you do it, it's not my problem and I leave. So take Jack my my the money and uh, let's yeah, go for yeah. it. How do you teach? No, yeah, no, I think that the um, there are a couple things to it. One is the the idea, and Henry Mintzberg, who's thought of as the godfather of organizational research, Mintzberg wrote a book in the '90s, I think it was, is called "Managers, Not MBAs," and he made a very good point: is that no one realizes what the A stands for, which is administration, right? Masters in business administration. The skills are largely administrative skills. How do you do marketing, right? How do you do accounting, finance, et cetera? There are very few. I went to a top tier MBA school, very few classes, and they're they're often a corner that actually talk about anything about people interactions and that kind of thing. It's not the focus. I mean, so the question Mintzberg said is, if you wanted to make a great manager, what does the curriculum look like? And it looks like a holistic individual personal development program like it's and some of the key ideas are i as a manager need to understand me right i need i need to understand who i am if you think of what 
the training maybe a leadership coach goes through. Um, that's that's the sort of thing where I get some self-awareness. I learn to ask questions better. I learn to help people find balance in their lives and understand their issues. And it's very interpersonal, right? And none of that, none of that stuff's taught in an MBA program, right? So, so the and and your example of the one day management class, no, nothing, nothing you get taught. You may take away one little idea, but the problem is what we know about adult learning is that doesn't work. Okay. I mean, I can go into a whole litany of why it doesn't work because there are like seven factors that have to be true, and none of them are true in that setting. What we've done because I knew that. And back when we started the company, I said, we're going to try and do a mind shift. And I did the research. I knew some of it already. Um, the only way adult learners and especially managers learn is through a very complex process of having them understand the problem, which is what my book is about, which is what is the problem with management, and then putting them in a real world situation where you coach them into behaving differently. And what we see is that, as you would expect, some and usually some good percentage of the managers get it and go, oh, that's what managing is, right? But it's got to be with a live project. And this is what we specialize in as we go in and they, people, <laughs> our clients start with, okay, so I just, do I send the, the project managers to your class? <laughs> no, no, no. No, in fact, you can probably leave them out if you want, okay? We're going to train the organization and and that's going to be and then they say oh great so uh, what do you need a day I'm like no no we probably need a couple of weeks um, and they say okay well what's the project you're going to use I said I don't know you need to tell me because we're going to use a real project it's the only way to learn when we do the training and and sort of transformation really is what it is behavioral transformation it has to be on the work that they do. So when we leave, they know how to do the work that they do, right? It's There's no abstract training or anything like that. So it's a very, very, if you combine what Mintzberg said about inner the inner journey, right? And when what we've proven now with the outer journey, which is you need to repattern organizations. Um, mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a challenge, but hey, we're going to win this battle. Or we're going to, we're going to make a difference. Do you, because if you are helping creative agencies, maybe even companies who are uh, agencies who are working in, in technology, um, do you use the agile methodology when you are doing a transformation program? Well, so we, if you, for those of the audience, I'll, I'll just elaborate a little bit. The, the agile methodology basically has sort of three three big ideas, one of which I mentioned, which is stay the fuck away from the team, right? But the the first one is let's all agree on what we're going to do in the near term, right? And there's a there's a method called agile planning. A lot of a lot of software agile, which is where it came from, was built around the idea we could never really understand the whole thing, but let's make sure we understand a tiny piece really well and we will build that. Then we'll look at it and add it to what we built before. So there's sort of this three part thing which actually corresponds so you've got the why we do some planning and then you've got the and the why and the what and then we do the go which is the sprint and then we got the grow where we reflect on it so in that way absolutely we use agile principles okay the for the most part though agile planning was really a rarefied technique designed for software development and and any application of it the general application of it in, in other business actually does more to confuse whether people are aligned than actually get them aligned uh, because it's very high level. And the problem is the problem is not a high level problem of getting aligned on why and what. Remember, managers have to get aligned on why and what. And if we keep it at a high level, then they're just all going to agree they understand it, right? And you've got to go into the details. And, and most projects, you can go into the details, especially the why behind it. And when you start doing that, and we've, we've re-engineered that whole process, when you start doing that, you start getting different results. And uh, so we use, a, we, we use a little bit of it, but I mean, we don't use Agile as a macro thing for how we do the training. We do, we do more of a learning journey, transformation journey kind of thing. I like it, Jack. Um, do you have any clear like examples of of organizations of companies who have really started the movement because let's call it as it is 
this shit about managers being having the same job description for the last 30 years, it needs to end now. Uh, so do you have any examples of companies that have started the movement of managing less? Yeah, so this is a, um, it's it's interesting. There are a couple things. Well, section five in my book, I go into this a little bit, but it's an area where we do, we actually are doing a lot of consulting right now around sort of roles and titles and organizational design and the like. It's a very, very cool area. Uh, we're very contrarian in that way. So people do have a need to be able to see career progression, okay? That I'm getting better and that I have something to aspire to. The the problem largely is that we've stuck to the hierarchy. So if I have two people in a department that are both good, one's one's going to be a winner and the other's going to be a loser. And that's horrible. And so am, among the many things we need to do is we need to throw out hierarchy and and replace it with something that shows progression without elimination, right? Okay. Without that winner take all kind of game. And you know the other the other piece to this this challenge is that um, we we do in in having that progression we go back to an old thing which I, I have in the beginning of the book is we used to know how to do this well and this was the master apprentice model okay mm -hmm. there's the master who knows how to do things well I use a saddle maker as an example the master saddle maker's job is not to make saddles but it's to make great saddle makers right. And so they are they're a teacher, a mentor, an explainer, that kind of thing, and and a guider, right? And and so that's the other managerial job is how do I how do I how, how do I grow my people and get them doing that? And so you need to change all the org structure around. You got to do something about titles and the like. And in the end of the day, you need a little bit of managing, you need a little bit of hierarchy. I can give you an example. We've got a 40-person agency in Australia. I mentioned them in the book. Dan is the CEO. Um, and he he literally, once he got this, he had a couple, you know, he had a layer of, you know, three or four senior, very senior directors and VPs. They're all gone now, right? They all left because they didn't like it. But they're doing quite well. The organization's doing quite well. Um, but he doesn't have titles at all. Um, and I, I don't know that that's a solution for everyone. But, you know, so the next question you're going to say is, well, wow, what what about when I leave Dan's company? And I mean, how do I get a job somewhere? I had no title. The answer is very simple. Dan says, when you go leave the company, you can put whatever you want as your title here. I don't mm -hmm. care. Why do I care if you say you were VP of development and you were just a simple developer? If you get a job as VP of development, good luck. <laughs> you need to live up to it. Okay, that's fine. Um, and so the that whole idea of of hierarchy in so many ways just goes away when we start relaxing these standards around what we're called and what status means and 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 what you know what even is there a climbing the hierarchy or is it more I get greater responsibility and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's very doable. It's it takes it takes a mindset and it takes it takes a CEO that wants to really make a change that all that structural stuff, the big structural stuff, that's got to be a very, it's a very enlightened leader who takes that kind of thing on. How would you say that, um, how would, can we measure that um, a manager on the sense that you have in your book, which is called unmanaged, um, <laughs> how can you, how, how can we measure the success of a good manager in the context of your book? Yeah, well, I think it's, I, I can tell you in the context of any business, you know, the typically what happens and it doesn't work is uh, managers measure measure managers. In other words, the I'm I'm a manager and I have several managers reporting to me and I measure them. And I, I, I have citations in there about great work that was done for Deloitte Consulting around this idea of how well does that really work? And it turns out there's incredible more than, I think it's almost two thirds of the factors that determine the, the evaluation have nothing to do with work performance. Okay. They, they have to do with essentially this sort of biased uh, value thing. In other words, the more someone seems like me, and you can think of this as racist, for example, or sexist, right? The more someone feels like, seems like me or shares the same values, the the higher I will rate them, right? Which is horrifying, okay? The, Very so man, 
Yeah, yeah. So managers build this culture of approval, you know, mutual self-approval in-group thing. If you really want to measure workers, and this was Rensis Likert, the guy who invented the Likert scale, came up with a great way to do it is ask the workers okay, how well the manager is doing. And that's actually a very excellent way to do it. And we, we do that. We do an intake survey of that kind of thing. And you know, the funny thing is, is that Likert actually was able to correlate like 26 factors, 26 different questions like, when my manager makes a decision, do they actually consult me and incorporate any thoughts I have into their decision? And the more likely that was true, the higher the performance, the organization, and the happier the organization. Okay. And so, and the funny thing is if you compare worker scores and manager scores, managers always think they do way better at these things as well, right? Okay. Um, but yeah, you can you can measure managers. And I've got an exa another example in the book where um, a really cool CEO who taught me a lot, actually, we worked with them and did some things for them. Ben um, said all of his managers get evaluated on one criteria, which is they ask all the workers, thumbs up or thumbs down, did that manager help you get the job done, right? And and I, and I said the uh, yeah I said to Ben I said well what happens when someone gets a thumbs down he goes well they have to talk to me and 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 they stopped there I knew he was he was baiting me right and and I said well what happens when they get a second one and Ben said nobody ever gets a second one. <laughs> <laughs> You made me think about, funny enough, in my corporate life, at one moment, uh, somebody, I don't remember exactly who, uh, had the proposal to uh, that managers should be rated by the direct reports. And and I remember that they came to me <laughs> to find a solution. I was working on some area. This is, uh, and, and the fact is that because there was a, a a survey around all the managers how about how they rate themselves so we were using in order to convince the managers to accept this change of being rated by their direct reports saying but you have rated yourself as outperforming so you shouldn't be scared that your guys are rated. <laughs> oh, that's a nice argument yeah yeah yeah, yeah but 80 percent of them refused yeah yeah yeah, that's yeah, that finally, as you said, for managers, the more you are progressing in the career, uh, in the ladder of the hierarchy, the the less aware about yourself you you are. So you believe that you're good, but you yeah, also that, that, somebody asked your people, you're going to get. That's so interesting. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna use that. Thank you very much. That's really really interesting. Sort of simple case on the thing. You know, one of the things we see in that survey that I was talking about the 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 survey the entry survey that we do is when we get an organization to change and we look at the, we and re resurvey again, the managers actually score themselves lower than the workers score the managers. So the, the managers all of a sudden become sort of humble about how good they are or not, right? And and the worker's like, no, no, you do a pretty good job of that, right? I don't know if that's sort of a re rebound effect, like you do way better than you did before, so I'll give you some extra points. But um, it's interesting to see those scores flip-flop as they do a lot. Exactly. Uh, Jack, I'm going to, to put you on the spot for my last question. Uh, and, and I want to know if you, if you had only one hack that... As that a manager should aim to master, what would it be? That one thing that they should master. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is what's called asking questions. And it's not a simple topic. Okay, I do have a, a pretty good treatment of it in the back of the book in section six, which is about called the sections called the ingenious manager. And, and one of the big things, if we think about the why moment and the what moment, especially, and even the go moment, that that there are a bunch of questions there like what do you need to know what are we missing right what do you need from me to be successful today all those those questions are open up a dialogue they're open-ended questions and the like and and even um you know in, in terms of what do you need to get better in your career what experiences do you need the 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 genuine use of questions what are called humble questions um is really really powerful i, I do mention a book which i'm going to plug him because he's a famous author 
Edgar Schein has a book called Humble Inquiry, which is an amazing book. Um, it's a quick, way quicker read than my book, but I do summarize some of the key points in the back of my book. But that's really, and, and I think one of the other questions, sort of the penultimate question is really the manager asking the manager themselves a question is, do I really need to do something right now? Okay. Or is this just me feeling like I need to be managerial because I know that if it's that, I'm going to decrease productivity potentially. Right. So it's the understand do am I going to boost productivity with this action or not? Right. That's that's I think the ultimate question that managers should ask. Jack, thank you very much for your time. And I, I really want to thank this has you. Been great. Because already the fact that you have come with a kind of a, a rebel idea of saying do we need a manager and how to how can we can we develop the skills in order to be to manage less and be a good person that provides happiness to employees that create an empowering organization and finally more efficient that the one that brings money but with happy people not with the the guys who are uh, all the time um, so I definitely uh, recommend this book on manage master. The Magic of Creating Empowered and Happy Organizations is available in Amazon. Um, second thing is I really like the, 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 the fact that you have, as you I understood, you have a technical background where you have been using the agile methodology. And suddenly your interest is not anymore about the technology, but it's about the process that can be used in order to make more efficient organizations and you, your focus is quite clear. So it's about the places where there is the more mess agencies that needs to be creative. And in order to be creative, you shouldn't be doing the carrot and stick or the, yeah, the yeah. of the uh, of uh, the 19th century, uh, because creative people do not work like uh, with pressure or with uh, I throw you some money, become more creative. That doesn't work, by the way. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So your uh, your uh, company agency agile is helping these organizations to become more efficient and have more creative people. I love that, Jack. How can people, my audience, reach you out if they want to get in touch with you to get a little bit to know better about your methodology to unmanage uh, organizations? Or how can they reach you out, Jack? Yeah. So can you know the simplest way? I'm on LinkedIn, Jack Skills, and go find me there. Connect. I love to. I, and I connect with everyone you know who's who's into the book and the like and that kind of thing. And happy to answer questions. Uh, and then also, if you do want to explore us helping you, and we've done, like I said, two over 220 organizations now. Um, just contact us on agencyagile.com. Would love to give you a little overview of what we do and talk about what works and doesn't work and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jack. It was an amazing, inspiring time yeah. today. Thank you. Jack. Yeah, wonderful, next... wonderful podcast. Uh, very, very fun and great questions. I just want to thank you very much for just being so dialed in on, on thinking about this stuff. It makes it so much easier on my side. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Ivan. <laughs> thank you, Jack.